I invite you now to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We read all 13 verses. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the, ex that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. So far, God's reading. Did I turn myself on? Good. Uh, <clears throat> some of you... As uh, Frank read the first sentence, now about food sacrificed to idols, thought, oh, finally, no more marriage. <laughs> but uh, that's good. We, we're, we're, in, we're moving on. <clears throat> I wonder if, you've ever, uh, what have, wonder if you've ever heard about instant expert syndrome. Uh, it's it's that, that habit that probably we've all fallen into, or that slight failing that we've all fallen into, where we, where we read a news article or, or something online or we watch a video or watch a documentary and it's, a, it's about some thing and we, we go away feeling like we have become 
an instant expert on this topic. And it can be all sorts of things. It can be the Ukraine war. It could be training your dog. It could be uh, the, the, the space and, uh, because you've been reading about the James Webb telescope. Or it could be the Bible, or some verse or a prophecy or, or something. And you've read about it, you've heard about it, you've thought about it, and now uh, you're the expert and, and you're just brimming with excitement to go and share this wonderful knowledge with other people. And that's, of course, mostly harmless. Uh, it, it, you can get yourself into hot water, of course, if you happen to accidentally start pontificating in front of an actual expert. Uh, <laughs> and they sort of say, well, uh, it's not quite how it works. And then, then you kind of brought it back down to size. But we like to share knowledge, don't we? We like to, uh, we like to talk about the things that we know and, and knowledge being knowledgeable is highly prized in our culture. Uh, and so we like to talk about the things that we know. You, you might say that it was a matter of pride uh, and perhaps that's not a terribly new thing because Paul says there in uh, verse 1, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And really, uh, this verse is the theme of our chapter today. Uh, he's going to actually carry it across as he talks about this, uh, this question that, that, that seems they've raised to him, uh, food sacrificed to idols. What, as Christians, what should they do about food sacrificed to idols? And so, this morning... Paul, in verses 1 to 3, he outlines a principle, and we're going to look at that principle. Then he kind of works that principle through in, in, the, in the rest of the verses in the chapter, and we're going to look at the way he works that through so we, we make sure we've understood the principle that he's talked about. And basically, that principle is knowledge must be joined with love. Knowledge without love can, is dangerous. And so we're going to think about that and see how he applies it here and then we're going to go beyond the particular problem that he talks about here that is food sacrifice to idols and think about how we might fail to love in the use of our own knowledge well uh, first the principle as i say <clears throat> let me just quickly reread uh, verses one to three now about food sacrifice to idols we know that we all possess knowledge but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Uh, the Corinthian claim, it's in quotes there for us, uh, we all possess knowledge, is, seems to be something that they've sent him when they've asked this question. <clears throat> uh, then in verse 4, there's some more things that they've they've raised with him, it's truths, their knowledge, if you like, and he, he doesn't actually contradict that at all, but he shows that it's incomplete. That's what verse 2 is saying. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. That is, there's more that they need to know. What is the more that they need to know? Well, that's in verse 3, though there's a trick with verse 3. You, in our version, it says, as, as we just read, but whoever loves God is known by God. Now, you read that and you think, that's it's a total non sequitur. It doesn't follow. It's not logical. It, it, like, okay, it's true, Paul, we can see that, but how is that related to what you just said? And if you look in your footnotes, if you've got your Bible open, there's an alternative reading, that is an alternative version of the Greek 
text which says something more like, but whoever loves truly knows. Now, but whoever loves truly knows would actually flow better. Uh, and so then the question comes, which is correct? Now, I felt at this point that I, it will be useful for you to know, because some of you I'm sure don't know, that what we have in our Bibles here, the New Testament, is translated from uh, the Greek, the Greek New Testament, and the Greek New Testament has been put together by looking at thousands of Greek manuscripts that have been, uh, that from, a, from a long time ago, um, that have been uh, scattered all through the Mediterranean area, because that's where the Gospel went in the early days. And so we have thousands and thousands of copies of the New Testament. Now, it's usually, there's only one or two copies that are full New Testaments. Usually, it's uh, one letter or a part of the letter. Uh, sometimes, it's just a fragment. Like, the oldest fragment we have is probably about this big. It's a piece of the Gospel of John. We can tell that because we know what the words are. It's written on both sides. It's just this little fragment. That actually comes from just about 100 AD, just before probably, uh, which shows you how early some of these manuscripts come from. But there's thousands of those versions of those Greeks, Greek manuscripts, and as you might imagine, if you have thousands of copies of something, there's going to be some differences. And so what scholars do uh, is that they compare all of these and they find what the differences are, and they compare them also to, other, to, to translations of the Greek text into other ancient languages, and then they compare them to uh, ancient writers writing about particular passages uh, and compare them to what, how they quote those passages. So they have lots of resources, and they compare all that together and they try and work out uh, what is the original text. Now, I've got a, I've got a picture here just for your interest. That's the Greek New Testament up there. Uh, verse 2 has a variant reading, that is, it has some variation, and then down here, you, all these, this Alpha and A, and they're all the manuscripts that have this particular reading, then there's uh, other manuscripts that have different readings, and there's other manuscripts that have other readings and so on, and so you can see that an awful lot of work has gone into working out, well, what is most likely to be the original thing that Paul wrote, and that's 1 Timothy uh, 3, or 4, 3, I think that is. Um, now, why do I tell you all that? Well, because I know that you love a manuscript study, of course. But um, no, I, when, when, we, when you come to something like this, and when I say, well, look, there's a, different, there's a different reading in some of the Greek manuscripts, I don't want you to kind of get nervous about, you know, do, is, this, is this actually the New Testament? Is this what Paul wrote? Well, well, look, even if we took the very worst version, like, we, if, if, like you always took the worst option, and we, we made the New Testament from that. Everything that Christ did, everything that Christ said, uh, like all the basic core truths of the gospel would still be there exactly as we have them. There's just little variations. And so what we have here is trustworthy and is sure. And when it comes to this particular verse, even if you take either option, the basic idea of the passage does not change at all. Indeed, I think what the NIV has chosen is probably what Paul wrote. I say that because, if you think about it, uh, how, do, how do errors come in? They come in because uh, copiers make a mistake, or copiers uh, of the text want to put in something that make, that's easier and makes more sense than something else, and so they correct it. 
in a helpful way. <laughs> yes, thank you very much, scribe from 2,000 years ago. That's very helpful. Um, and, but what, if you think about that, then what, what they're more likely to do is put in the thing that's easier, not harder. So it's un, it will be unusual for them to put in something that kind of doesn't seem to follow. Does, does that, you, logically, that, uh, hopefully that makes sense to you. Um, and so the easier reading is probably wrong. That's, that's the way we kind of work these, this stuff out. So, but even if we took this one, but whoever loves, know, loves truly knows, even if we took that one, the basic point is the same and we can get to what Paul is saying through the rest of what he says. But I think that this one is right and I think what he's saying, or the reason he says it this way, whoever loves God is known by God, the reason he says that there is because in order to know anything, you have to start with what really is important to know and that is that God knows you. It's not what you know, it's not what's in your head, it's that God, the God of the universe, knows who you are and not only knows you but this means knows and loves you and wants a relationship with you. That is our starting point for knowledge. And if you know that the Lord of the universe knows you and cares for you and loves you, that means you love him, that's the only way you can love him. And therefore, you love other people with your knowledge. And that's Paul's point. Knowledge without love is dangerous. That is, knowledge divorced from the idea that we are loved by God and therefore love God and love others is dangerous. We must start with the truth that God knows us and loves us so that with our knowledge we love others. That's the principle that Paul is laying out. And then he works that principle out. He kind of restarts his argument in verse 4. So then about food sacrificed to idols, because I kind of got a little bit distracted, and I've given you the principle now. So then let me tell you what to do with this issue, given this principle, that knowledge without love is dangerous. You need to love people with your knowledge. And what does he say? Well, he, he states two truths that they seem to have given to him. An idol is nothing in the world and there is only one God. He doesn't dispute that. In fact, he confirms that. And he says in verse 6, uh, and I've arranged it so you can kind of see the parallelism here, yet there is one, but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Uh, it's amazing how much Paul has managed to pack in to this one little sentence and, and the, the way he's arranged it is, is really quite brilliant and, and I would encourage you, if you can kind of memorise this, to even go home and just kind of dwell on it because as I've been doing that over the week, you just start to see more and more implications of what Paul is saying here about who God is and who we are and our relationship with Him. God originates all things, all things are for Him and we... We live for Him. Everything is made for Him. It is for His glory. And yet, all things are made through Christ. That is, nothing that exists exists without Christ. And, and we live through Him. That is, life cannot be except with the continual work of Christ. In other words, yes, you're right, Corinthians, idols are nothing and there is only one God because God made everything and He sustains everything. Everything is about Him and for Him and for His glory. You're absolutely right. Idols are nothing. Now, in affirming their knowledge, 
Paul does something very important here. One way of taking that statement, knowledge puffs up and love builds up, is to say, well, well, if that's the case, let's forget about knowledge. Because knowledge is dangerous. Knowledge inevitably leads me to become proud and arrogant and to talk down to people. So rather than, rather than focus on knowledge, let's ditch any... Oh, and we can have knowledge, but let's not worry about it too much, lest we become proud and, and, and harm people. And in a way, that's kind of what our world has done. And in fairness to our world, it's, it's out of a desire for compassion and for harmony amongst people. It says, well, look, people are always fighting against, about what they believe and how they think the world works. Why don't you, know, you have your truth and I'll have my truth and then we can just get on. I mean, the problem with that is that that makes a mockery of the word truth, doesn't it? I mean, how can, how can be your truth and my truth? It doesn't make any sense. And Jesus himself doesn't talk like this. Jesus says, I am the way the truth and the life. I am the truth. No one comes to the Father but by me. I define reality, says Jesus. If you want truth, you've got to come to me and understand me. In other words, truth is out there and we have to learn what that is and so that we have knowledge of truth. Uh, it's worth noting that what we have in our heads as knowledge may not match the truth. Yeah? <laughs> so you can be arrogant even if you're wrong, just so you know. <laughs> so you can, you can have knowledge that puffs you up even if that knowledge is complete and utter nonsense. Uh, because sometimes, because we're sinful human beings, the truth as defined by God is not what's in our head as knowledge. But truth is important. We don't hide from truth. We don't say truth doesn't matter. We don't uh, hide the truth because it might be offensive to people. But truth can be dangerous if it is not completed by love. Paul goes on to demonstrate that very thing as he goes on in this passage. Having established the truth, yes, idols are nothing, and yes, there is only one God, he talks about why that might be a problem for some. And he says in verse, the second half of verse 7, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Now understand, uh, understand that, oh, I didn't, there you go. Understand that uh, in that culture, these idol feasts were everywhere. And so you've got to picture a person who has grown up in Corinth, uh, you know, maybe to the age of 30, when finally Paul comes and shares the gospel and they believe. But all of their life, all of their life, they've been going to the temple. Their parents told them that these gods were the true gods. They've believed that when it rained and, and, and when the crops grew and, and whatever else happened, it was because the sacrifice had been given to the God, right? This was ingrained in their life time and time and time again. And when they went and they ate the food at, at these feasts that just happened all the time, they, they, they believed and were convinced 
that they were offering to this God and appeasing this God and, and making the God give them what they wanted. Right? That, that, that's been their mentality for 30 years. And now they've come to believe in Jesus. And yes, they know, they know the truth that there is one God. They know that. They know that those idols aren't real gods. They know that. But you see what Paul says here? They're so accustomed to it. <laughs> it's been part of their life for so long that when they go, when they, they see the temple, when they see the food, when they, they still kind of feel like, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe there's something there. Maybe, uh, do you, like it's very subjective, but human beings are like that. I don't know if you've noticed. We can know things, but feel something quite different. And so these people feel like, because their consciences are weak, that they're worshipping other gods, even though those, intellectually they know those gods don't exist, they feel like they're still worshipping, and so their conscience is defiled. That is, it puts a barrier between them and Jesus. Not a, not a true barrier, because the way is opened by Christ, but it puts a barrier between them in terms of their relating to God. And so, because there are people like that that exist in the church at the time, Paul says in verse 10, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in the idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. And then he goes on to say that you sin against Christ by doing that. Do you see what he's saying? Here you are, you, you know idols are nothing, and so you go to the temple uh, and eat some of the food. Now, you might say, hang on a minute, there's one thing to eat the food, but what are you doing in the temple? Come on, that's a bit of a stretch. Well, yes, I mean, this is Corinth, remember, they've had some issues. Um, but again, the, the, these feasts, these idol feasts and, and, and the eating at the temple, this was just part of life. It happened all the time. I, I don't know if they celebrated birthdays, but, you know, it would be the birthday and the wedding and the, and the this occasion and the that occasion. Everyone would be there and everyone would be mingling and talking and uh, this, was, this was where society happened. And so to, to not go to the temple um, is to cut yourself out of society that you've had for 30 or whatever years. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm just trying to help you understand why they might have done this. And in doing that, then the person with the weak conscience comes along, they still feel like that's that's a way of worshipping the old idols, and they come and they see you doing it, and they eat the food, and they defile their conscience. And Paul says, you can't do that. You can't do that. You're destroying their faith. Not I don't think he means destroying in the sense that oh, this person's not going to heaven anymore. He's just saying, he's kind of using hyperbole, I think, to show how, how damaging it is for their relationship with Christ. And so what does he say? Verse 13, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. So none of you are allowed to meet, eat meat anymore. No, that's not true. Don't worry. Yeah, I could see some of you getting ready to leave uh, and never come back again. Um, no, at meat, because that was what was most commonly uh, sacrificed, uh, so he's kind of gone from food to meat, but it's just the food. Um, 
And he says, look, if that's going to cause them a problem, I'm allowed to eat the meat. The idols are nothing. There's only one God. I can eat it. But if that's going to cause someone a problem, um, I, don't even, I don't need meat. I don't have to eat it ever again. That's fine. This is love joined with knowledge. Or if you like, uh, if you envisage a river being knowledge driving our actions, driving forward, driving forward, and love are the banks that shape and direct our knowledge and our action. It's both. Knowledge allows Paul to eat the meat. He could eat it. It's fine. He says in verse 8, food doesn't bring us near God and we're no worse off if we eat. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Just, food is neither here nor there. But love shapes my action because I see the way that, that action might affect someone else's faith. If what I do will cause them to have trouble in their faith and their, their relationship with Jesus, I won't do it. I'll put it aside. It's not important to me. What's important to me in love is that I care for you and your walk with Jesus. This is sacrificial love. This is sacrificial love. And that's what Paul means in his principle. That whoever is known by God uh, whoever loves God is known by God. When we're known by God and we understand God's love for us, we can use our knowledge to love others. Well, that, that's what Paul is saying. But, as I said, I don't think there's probably anyone here who's struggling to escape the clutches of temple uh, idolatry. I, I'm hoping that none of you have visited a temple lately to eat some of the food there. Um, but it would be possible, wouldn't it, th in theory, that as, w as we seek to share the gospel with our neighbours, that there will be people who have arrived in Australia from other cultures uh, who are idol worshippers, in, in effect, and we share the gospel to them, and when they come into the church, we need to think carefully about how we do things so as not to cause them to stumble. I have no idea what that might be, but we would at least have to have in our, our minds the category that we would have to curtail our behaviour, which is perfectly permissible and allowed and so on, but it's something that would cause them to stumble and so we would happily, we, I hope, put that aside in order to help them grow in their faith, to build them up. Now, I think it's worth noting that sometimes our Western Christians, that is Christians who have no uh, background at all in idolatry, go looking for problems, looking for ways in which perhaps there's a tie between what we do now and some ancient idolatry practice or um, something in another culture that looks kind of like what we do and say, well, look, if we do that, we're, we're worshipping idols. Well, I don't, that's not what Paul's talking about here. And, and let me point out that Paul is talking about people who are weak in conscience because of their past life not because they've gone looking for something to be uh, offended by. And it's not good to be weak, right? There's, by using that word, weak conscience, he's Im implying that you actually want to grow beyond this. And so don't go looking for ways that, we, that maybe perhaps there might be some tie between some practice that we do in the West that might have maybe one day have, have been in the past some uh, pagan festival. Oh, look, if, if it's not, if, if, there's no such thing as idols not affecting our faith in our relationship with Jesus, we didn't even know. 
don't beat your fellow believers around the head with some knowledge that you have gained. But of course, there are idols in our culture, aren't there? There's not idol idols, not many at least, but there are idols in our culture. For the people in our culture, idolatrize things like uh, money and wealth and possessions, houses and cars and boats and sex and power and sport and all sorts of things. And people will come to faith out of those idolatries. Uh, And people even in the church will struggle with those idolatries. And at times, uh, people uh, will come to faith out of addictions, like alcoholism and stuff. And we ought to be ready, as believers, to help them leave their past idolatries, obsessions, if you like, behind. And so, given that one of the I think prime idolatries in our culture is, is possessions and money, we would be wise to think about how we speak about our possessions and our money. Because if that's always what we're talking about, it could be argued that we're only encouraging people's past idolatry. I had a friend, not from here, <laughs> uh, who came to faith and realised that he was obsessed with rugby league. It was just his whole life. His whole life up until that point had been focused on the league and betting on the league and who the players were and who was injured and who was winning and blah, 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 all the rest of it. And so he decided when he realised that, he was going to go cold turkey. He was just going to get off it entirely. I'm not going to read that, I'm not going to pay attention to that at all. Because rugby league is bad? No, no, no because that was an obsession for him and he wanted to serve Christ. Now, it would have been very unhelpful, wouldn't it, if, the, if I rolled up to him every Sunday and they said, hey, mate, did you see what happened in the game last night? Right? Or if I sent, you know, the selfies at the game, hey? Right? That, that would not be helpful to him. And if we are aware that people have been obsessed by things in the past, we do well not to encourage that in them. We do well to think about how we speak to people, what we post online and so on. But what, it, what idols might we be accidentally encouraging? There's nothing wrong with possessions or alcohol or, or status or, or any of these. They're, they're not in and of themselves good or bad. We need to be careful not to be, as it were, eating meat in the temple and suggesting that, hey, let's go back to that. We want our lives to point clearly to Jesus as the only one we worship. Now, as I said at the beginning, having seen, in a sense, the principle with our knowledge where to love other people, uh, we can go beyond the question of idolatry because there are other ways that our knowledge can lead to pride and cause harm to others rather than building them up in love. And I want to suggest two, uh, really two perspectives, one internally and one as we uh, go out with the gospel. And let me, I'll start internally because I think uh, probably the more likely 
uh, issue that we have is that of theological arrogance. Uh, now remember, <laughs> you can be theologically arrogant even if you're totally wrong. Right? <laughs> That's obviously much worse to be theologically arrogant if you're wrong, but uh, it is possible. And you can have, and you might have encountered this theological arrogance. What, you believe that? <laughs> oh, are you some sort of, you know, insert pejorative negative term, whatever that might be? And it comes from all sides of theology. Oh, you're an Armenian, are you? Oh, I see. Oh, you're not one of those Calvinists, are you? Right? It's, it can go both ways. Or maybe it's not direct rudeness. Perhaps it's just lecturing people, right? You're so right, people need to hear the thing that you've got to say. And, and you might have seen some people in those conversations and you can see that one of the people, they're like searching for a way out and they cannot find it. And they're hoping that maybe a mountain might fall out of the sky and crush them, t Right? But you can't let them go because they've got to hear what you have to say. They, they don't realise how wrong they are and how right you are. If only they could see. That's puffed up knowledge, isn't it? That's not knowledge being used to build up. Oh, I might have started that way, but it's not at that point. Now, don't, again, don't misunderstand. Theology, that is, the, the study of the truth about God, is extremely important. We want to know God as He is. I don't want to know God as you imagine Him to be, and you don't want to know God as I imagine Him to be. Uh, our minds are sinful and broken. We want to know God as He is, and the closer that we can get to, to knowledge of who He is as He is, the better it will be for all of us. But good theology is not a bat with which to beat people around the head until they agree with you or at least smile and nod in a desperate attempt to get away. Now, our theology is a gift to be carefully offered, a delightful meal to be served to people, not to be force-fed, but to be given we long for people to come to a better understanding of Jesus, but we have to deliver that with grace, love, and humility. Because here's the thing, friends, I believe things that are wrong. <laughs> I say that because it's inevitable. I wish it wasn't the case, especially since I stand up here. It's one of my greatest fears that I would tell you something that was not true about God. But we all do. And so when we come to people with theological understanding about God, we have to come with humility and the willingness to listen and understand. We are not infallible. And this goes especially for parts of the Bible that are less certain. There, there seems to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there seems to me there's an invoice, in, in, in verse 
relationship between certainty and determination to prove to others that you are right. The less certain something is in the Bible, the more people are determined to prove how right they are about it. Is that not true? I, I think that's true. The less certain something is in the Bible, the more people are doggedly intent on getting you to believe what it is. And, and so things like revelation and the end times and questions about the sacraments and spiritual gifts and how we do church and all sorts of things where the Bible has relatively little information on and, and we can get all caught up in being right about that and, and forcing it on people. And that's not what God wants. You see, what would have been helpful for this weak Christian in Corinth? Oh, come on, get over it. It's just a lump of stone. What do you care whether it's been sacrificed to it or not? There's no such thing as an idol anyway. What are you, you know, what are you doing? Would that have been helpful, do you think? <laughs> not, not likely. More likely to have helped them is pointing them to God. Whatever that idol was supposed to do, fertility or whatever, point, when the opportunity arose to, to thank God and to praise God for the thing, for the ways He had blessed you and provided and, and looked after you in the way that, that God is supposed to have done, right? You, you gently point people to the truth about God and bring them along because, you know, there's nothing more likely to cement someone in their belief than being arrogant toward them. Isn't that true? If, if you meet someone who's got a wrong belief or something you think is a wrong belief at least and you are arrogant toward them about that belief, I can almost guarantee they will go away more cemented in that wrong belief than they were in the beginning because that's what arrogant does, arrogance does. But we want to come together to the understanding of God. And so we come with weakness and humility and gentleness and a willingness, if, if they need to think about it some more, to walk away and say, isn't it great that we could have this conversation? Why don't, you, why don't we think about that together some more? Right? That, that's gentleness. It's a desire to see the person come and be built up in the knowledge of God and that's what we want. Well, the other area where we might fall into this, uh, this arrogance of knowledge is, of course, as we speak to outsiders. Because after all, uh, don't you know that we have uh, accepted God and we live God's ways and they have rejected God and they've rejected God's ways and they're foolish and blind and all the rest of it. And so, well, we, you know, we deserve at least a little bit of kind of, you know, at least slightly better than them. I mean, obviously, surely. <laughs> no. No. And if you're wondering... Arrogance and pride is not a good evangelistic strategy. Just putting it out there. Uh, that is not likely to win the day if you uh, are know-it-all. Now, when we take the gospel to other people, we come with gentleness. Now, how, how can we do that? How is it that we can have the attitude of Paul, how, how can we have gentleness toward other believers? Well, we have to go back to this idea at the beginning, whoever is known by God. And how are we known by God? Well, we're told in verse 11, Christ died for us. 
Christ died for us. Christ, who knew all things, had all power, had every right to be, if you like, arrogant, (laughs) he came into the world and he humbled himself to death, even death in the most humiliating way, death on the cross. That's how we're known by God. That's how God has known us, if you like, how he has loved us and he has cared for us. It is by his humble and gracious son. And so we, at root, all of us who have come to Christ are only ever rescued sinners. That's what we are. You're not better than that person. You're not more clever than that other person. You're, you're just a rescued sinner like the rest of us. That's what we are. And any knowledge that you have and any understanding that you've been given is just that. It's given. It's given by God through His Spirit, through His Word. And so we approach each other with humility and love and always that our desire and hope is that they, they come to know that God knows them, that He loves them and He cares for them and He has loved them through His Son. And if you're sitting here uh, perhaps cringing at past behaviours, uh, you're, you're thinking of times when you've, you've, you've been arrogant in your knowledge, know that Christ has forgiven you. He died for you. He rescued you from your sin. That's what he came to do. And now he's calling you to admit what you are a rescued sinner, and to go and love people with the knowledge that he's given you. So that more and more, all of us can come to understand and love our great God who knows us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us by your Son, that we are known by you and can know you. And Lord, we do long to know you better and better, to see you more clearly, to understand you more. And Father, we pray that as we do that, we would not fall into the trap of arrogance, that we would use the love that you have shown us, the knowledge you have given us to love others. Forgive us for past arrogance, And renew us that we might love with the knowledge you've given us so that we all might love you and know you better each day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I could ask you to stand, uh, I have some verses to share with you from uh, 1 John. I also would just remind parents uh, after we've sung our final song uh, to go and pick up their children from kids at church. But this is 1 John. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another.